0: Lesson comes to us this morning from the good news according to Saint Mark, the eighth chapter, starting with verse 27. Then Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. But he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Then he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them, if anyone would take, would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And this is the gospel of our Lord.
1: Well, good morning. It is always good to be back here at Resurrection Brooklyn. I keep wanting to say Resurrection Clinton Hill, but Resurrection Brooklyn. I haven't made the transition yet. Um, would you please pray with me? Uh, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, I want to start by asking us two questions. Uh, who are you? And who do other people... Think that you are. Uh, those are two really important questions for any of us, uh, because you know who you think you are shapes how you carry yourself in the world, and uh, and it's also very jarring to us when we discover that who we think we are and who other people think that we are don't match up. Uh, I had an experience last summer when I was going through security at the airport, uh, and I you know. I was jarred because I had grown up wrestling. I was a wrestler as a middle school student, wrestler as a high school student, wrestled for a very successful wrestling team. Very proud of that experience. It was very formative. Uh, And so I was going through security and the TSA agent says to the man in front of me, you look like a wrestler. Were you a wrestler? And the man says, no, no, I wasn't a wrestler. And so the TSA agent hands him back his ID and then I step up. And I hand her my ID, and I say, I was a wrestler. And she looked me up and down and said, you look like a computer guy. (laughs) I I still have not quite gotten over it. So uh, the questions of who you think you are and of who others think you are are very important questions for any of us. Uh, But there is another question, related but different, that is even more vital. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, starting with verse 27. In our Gospel text this morning, Jesus asks his disciples and us the most consequential question that has ever been asked. Who do you say that I am? Now, this may not have been the question that was on the top of your mind when you woke up this morning, but it is the question on which world history has turned for the last 2,000 years, whether we realize it or not. The great Yale historian, Yaroslav Pelikan, put it this way, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible, with some sort of supermagnet To pull up out of the history every scrap of metal, at least bearing a trace of his name, how much would be left? And the answer is, not much. Let me give you an example. Uh, So as you've heard from Jameson, for the last five years, Alyssa and I have had the privilege of studying and living and uh, of ministering to graduate students uh, at Oxford University. The University of Oxford is comprised of 39 colleges, colleges with names like Trinity College, or Christ Church College, or even Jesus College. Some of them are named after saints, and nearly all of the colleges have chapels and choirs. The university now is supposed to be secular, but the motto of the university, etched in stone everywhere you look, is still Dominus Illuminatio Mia, Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light. So if you were to use Yaroslav super magnet to pull up every trace of Jesus' influence on Oxford, there really wouldn't be anything left but creeks and cow pastures. And much the same could be said for nearly everything that we prize in Western culture today, especially when it comes to our most fundamental values, our idea of who we are and of what matters most. This is why I say that the question of who Jesus was is the most consequential question that has ever been asked. So this morning, as we look at Mark chapter 8, we're going to wrestle with the meaning and identity of Jesus by asking three big questions. First, who is Jesus? Second, why should anybody believe in him? And third, so what? What difference does it make? So first, who was Jesus? Or better yet, who is Jesus? Let me set the scene for us. Uh, Our passage comes from the midpoint of Mark's gospel. Mark is the very first uh, biographical account that we have of Jesus' life. When the scene opens, Jesus has been going from village to village in the poverty-stricken region of Galilee. He's been miraculously healing people by the hundreds and miraculously feeding them by the thousands. He's been teaching in cryptic parables and riddles and saying that the kingdom of God was drawing near, that God was going to act in a decisive way sometime soon. People were astonished by his teaching and his miracles, and they were rattled by the authority with which he delivered both. And they were perplexed by his embrace of rejects and outsiders. Predictably, he had begun to attract crowds wherever he went, He was a man of the people, and a movement was rapidly building around him. He was also controversial. The scribes and Pharisees, the self-appointed guardians of Jewish piety, took umbrage at the way in which he presumed to speak for God, forgiving people's sins, the way he flouted Jewish rules of purity and decorum. Uh, the way he shamelessly fraternized with traitors and hookers and other good-for-nothings, and the way he played fast and loose with the Sabbath laws and so on. They thought he was a heretic, a blasphemer, or maybe worse. So, as you can imagine, there was a buzz in the air at that time. Who is this Jesus? Who does he think he is? What's his angle? What's his endgame? Inquiring minds wanted to know It's against this background that Jesus leads his disciples into the city of Caesarea Philippi in the northernmost region of Israel and asks them who they think he is. Now, the first principle of real estate is a good principle for interpreting the Gospels. Location, location, location. The location of this scene is Caesarea Philippi, as I've just said, which was named after Philip. A member of the brutal and corrupt Herodian dynasty, which had usurped the throne of Israel. It was also named after Tiberius Caesar, who ruled the Roman Empire with an iron fist and then occupied Israel as a client kingdom. The city, so named, stood as an emblem of a whole political order built upon graft, cruelty, and foreign oppression. And it was a stark reminder that God had not yet done what, according to the prophets, he had promised to do. The people of Israel were still waiting for Daniel's ancient and mysterious dream to finally come true. For God, the ancient of days, to raise up one like a son of man, to share his throne and to give him an everlasting dominion and an indestructible kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him and the God of Israel. Now, this wasn't an otherworldly spiritual dream for the people of Israel. For many in Israel, this was very much a this-worldly political hope. They wanted a revolution, and they were waiting for God to raise up the man who would make Israel great again. So, When Jesus asks his disciples in that place, at that moment, who do people say that I am, it must have sounded a bit to them like a politician in an election year checking the opinion polls to see what his prospects for higher office might be. So what were people saying about Jesus? What did the polls say? Well, most, it seems, thought Jesus was a prophet, someone who would come and speak truth to power, someone like John the Baptist or Elijah. But Jesus turns the question around on his disciples and asks them directly, How about you? Who do you say that I am? Now, the text doesn't tell us how long it took them to answer. I somewhat wonder if there was a long pause as they kind of collected their thoughts. But the text does tell us that the first one to speak up was a disciple named Simon Bar-Jonah, better known to us as St. Peter. Now, it's best not to imagine Peter here with a halo, uh, the way that he's often portrayed in med- medieval or Renaissance paintings. Instead, we should try to imagine Peter as the hard scrabble commercial fisherman that he then was. Remember that Peter or Petros was just a nickname, and it meant rock. Uh, and Barjona just means son of John. So, if you were from where I come from, you would just say Rocky Johnson. So whenever you read the Gospels and you see Peter, think Rocky Johnson. So when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am, Rocky answered to him, you are the Christ. In other words, you're the anointed, you're the Messiah, you're the next king of Israel, the one we've been waiting for to send Philip packing and to you know, kick Caesar out of our land and to set the whole world right again. Peter's answer is explosive in its implications. It's a call to revolution, essentially. And he clearly thought that this was the answer that Jesus was fishing for. And he wasn't entirely wrong. But at that very moment, when Peter and the rest of the disciples uh, are expecting Jesus to publicly launch his campaign for Messiah, Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one. Not yet. Then Mark tells us Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, the king that the prophet Daniel had dreamed of, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and that after three days he would rise again. This is how Israel's true king would reclaim his throne and God's eternal kingdom would be established. And instead of speaking in riddles and parables the way he usually did, Jesus said all of this plainly. He gave it to them straight, and it scared the pants off of them. You see, Jesus wanted a revolution too. But Jesus' revolution was going to be more transformative and farther reaching than Peter and the rest of the disciples could yet imagine. So first, he needed to spell out his agenda to make sure that his future spokespeople were all on the same page before he would officially launch his campaign on Easter morning. You see, Jesus, uh, here again, the, this, the location of this conversation is very instructive. Uh, Caesarea Philippi wasn't just a, a political symbol. The city was also famous for its pagan temples and was emblematic of an entire pagan uh, religious and moral worldview. As Jesus and the disciples walked through downtown Caesarea Philippi, They would have passed by the Augustium, a temple that was dedicated to the worship of Octavian, the founder of the Roman Empire. In life, Octavian had been acclaimed Augustus Caesar after he had defeated all of his rivals, consolidated his power, and then led Rome to conquer much of the Mediterranean world. And upon his death, he was declared to be a god, and the worship of Caesar became a staple. In the Roman Empire thereafter, the Augustium, his temple, spoke of an entire worldview and value system underpinning the culture of the pre Christian world. The historian Tom Holland describes this worldview well. He says, Divinity was for the very greatest of the great, for victors and heroes and kings. Its measure was the power to torture one's enemies, not to suffer it oneself to nail them to the rocks of a mountain, or to turn them into spiders, or to blind and crucify them after conquering the world. So the Augustium and the other temples of Caesarea Philippi were monuments to this entire ancient religious and political mindset. And it is this worldview, this whole system of values, that Jesus was going to turn upside down. Jesus declared to his disciples that he was indeed the one that they had been waiting for, but the royal road to his enthronement led down, not up. It would take him through humiliation and death and out the other side. And Jesus said this all plainly, and if there wasn't an awkward silence before, there certainly was now. To Peter and the rest of the disciples, Jesus' idea of a revolution didn't sound like good news at all. It sounded like disaster. In fact, it sounded crazy. Which brings us to our next question about Jesus why should anybody believe in him? So, if all of this sounds a bit far fetched to you, you're not alone. Peter didn't buy it either. When Peter first heard Jesus' grand plan, he took Jesus aside and warned him not to speak this way. He was scared. What Jesus was saying sounded insane and peter wasn't unique in finding Jesus' prediction of his death and resurrection to be a tough pill to swallow and contradicted the common sense of the entire ancient world as the apostle paul wrote in his first letter to the corinthians about 20 years later the idea that the king of kings was a crucified rabbi from a backwater of the roman empire was foolishness to the to the gentiles and it was offensive to the jews but that was the early church's story, and they stuck to it. Why? Because they had seen the risen Jesus with their own eyes. His tomb was empty, and God's spirit was on the move amongst them. And in the decades after Jesus' death, news of his resurrection began to spread like wildfire, first among the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed. And then within four centuries, the good news that Jesus was Lord had become the official creed of the very empire that had put Jesus to death in the first place. Jesus conquered Rome, not by the sword, but by the Spirit and by winning their hearts and their minds. So how on earth do we explain this dramatic turn in world history? Fleming Rutledge, the great preacher, makes the point that if Jesus had not been raised from the dead none of us would ever have heard of him. There were about a dozen would-be messianic movements that sprung up between the 1st century B.C. and the 2nd century A.D., and all of them were snuffed out either by the Romans or by other Jews. Can you name any of their leaders? Do any of their names ring a bell for you? Have you ever heard of Judas of Gamala or Simon Bar-Giora or Thutis? I'd be absolutely shocked if any of you had. When they were killed, their claims and their movements died with them, and they were forgotten by all but a handful of professional historians. Their names have been buried in the sands of time. Not so with Jesus. Within just a few days of his crucifixion, his disciples were proclaiming that he was indeed the Messiah and that God had raised him from the dead. These disciples, including Peter, had initially run and hid, as did most followers of would-be failed messiahs. But then, within a matter of weeks, they were proclaiming that Jesus was not dead and buried, but the living Lord. Again, consider Rocky Johnson. We see in this text that Peter could not stomach the idea that Jesus could be both crucified and king. And we know that he abandoned Jesus at the hour of his arrest. But we also know, as a matter of historical fact, that from Easter onwards, Peter not only spent the rest of his days preaching that the risen Jesus was Lord, but that he took that good news into the belly of the beast, that he went to the city of Rome itself, and in 64 AD, he died a martyr's death in Rome, crucified upside down, because he didn't believe himself worthy to die in the same position as his king How do you explain any of this unless Peter really, truly believed that Jesus was, in fact, raised from the dead? Now, I don't pretend to have a knockdown argument or a definitive proof. History doesn't really work that way. But there are really good reasons to believe in Jesus' resurrection. And there are really difficult questions facing anyone who wants to deny it, at least seriously. Which brings us to our third question. So what? What difference could it possibly make? There's maybe two ways that we can tackle this. First, what difference has Christ made historically to our culture? And then second, what difference does Christ make to you and me personally? First, the difference Christ has made. Uh, The great Southern writer Flannery O'Connor once said that while the American South is hardly Christ-centered, It is most certainly Christ haunted. And that even the Southerner who is not fully convinced of Christianity is nevertheless very much afraid that he or she may have been formed in the image and likeness of God. And maybe that describes some of us here this morning. Now, Jesus undoubtedly casts a long shadow over Southern culture, but I think any impartial student of history would have to say that the entire Western world is Christ haunted and that it's a good thing too. Before Christ, it was taken for granted that there were fundamentally different kinds of human beings. People were strictly ranked by birth and sex and class and tribe. Some people counted, most did not. In the fourth century BC, and the BC is the key point here, Aristotle put it this way, from the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection and others for rule. So, Who was marked out for rule in the ancient world? Able-bodied, able-minded, well-born and well-off men. It was a man's world. Dignity, rights, privilege and power were reserved for those who had had the good fortune of being healthy, wealthy and male. So who was marked out for subjection? Well, everyone else. Slaves made up roughly a third of the Roman Empire's urban populations and they had no rights whatsoever. They were regarded by the Romans as non hobbins personam, as non-persons, literally as not having a face. Unwanted children, children who were sickly or handicapped or deformed or who were just female, were considered disposable and were regularly tossed onto trash heaps or into sewers and left to die. And women were treated as the property of men and foreigners were regarded as barbarians to be conquered or kept at bay. In the ancient world, women... Children, foreigners, slaves, were all marked out for subjection from the hour of their birth. Before Christ, they were all faceless, in the Greco-Roman world, at least. But in Christ, all of that changed. After Jesus' death and resurrection, when the early Christians saw slaves, women, children, the poor, the weak, the sick, they saw the faces of people for whom Christ had died. In fact, they saw the face of Christ himself— In his book, A Brief History of Thought, uh, the agnostic philosopher Luke Ferry, a professor at the University of Paris, says that the Christian gospel gave us the modern notion of a common humanity. Professor Ferry writes this, "'After Christ, humanity would never again "'be able to divide itself philosophically "'according to a natural and aristocratic hierarchy of beings "'between superior and inferior, "'gifted and less gifted, masters and slaves,' From then on, according to Christians, we were all brothers on the same level as creatures of God, rich or poor, intelligent or simple. It no longer mattered. And the Greek concept of barbarian slowly disappeared to be replaced by the conviction that humanity is one. Or as the Apostle Paul wrote just a few decades after Jesus' crucifixion, there's no longer Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no longer male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. This was an entirely novel vision of humanity. Now, have Christians always lived out this moral vision consistently? Obviously not. (laughs) Have Christians ever lived it out fully? No, of course, we haven't. Whether we think of the Crusades or the European wars of religion or slavery or the Jim Crow South, Christians have never lived up to Christ. But the fact remains that Christ set a higher moral bar than had ever been set, and so raised the bar for the entire world. So today, if you take it for granted that all human beings have intrinsic worth, if you believe that all men were created equal and are endowed with inalienable rights, or if you think that people should not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, if you think that slavery is wrong and infanticide is murder, and that people are on the other side of the world, are people too, then your moral compass has been fundamentally calibrated by the revolution set in motion by Jesus of Nazareth some 2,000 years ago. It was this revolution that inspired Christians to invent, yes, invent hospitals, and to establish schools and orphanages the world over, and to develop ideas like human rights and the rule of law. And while Christians have never fully lived up to Christ— the message of the cross has given Christians unparalleled resources for moral self-criticism and self-correction. And it's no accident that the great 19th and 20th century reform movements that abolished slavery and child labor and that gave women the vote and that ended segregation and took place uh, all of this took place within Christendom and were all argued for between Christians on Christian grounds. To the extent that we take these reforms for granted, think that they were a good thing and think that their work is not yet done or think that they didn't come soon enough, we're all Christ-haunted. The historian Tom Holland put it this way, So profound has been the impact of Christianity on the development of Western civilization that it has come to be hidden from view. So what difference has Christ made to culture? All the difference in the world. So much difference that we now experience it as fish experience water. We're all Christ-haunted, whether we realize it or not. So, what difference, then, does Christ make to you and to me, personally? In this morning's passage, Jesus spells out for us what his revolution means for the disciples, and then and now. He says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This, I think, is why Christ haunts us. We're haunted by the possibility that the Gospel might be true and by the question of what it would mean for us to become Christ-centered, to take up our crosses and to follow him. In our meritocratic, bootstrapping culture, We're haunted by the idea that grace and mercy might actually be decisive and that the last really will be first and the first really will be last. We fear that after spending the best years of our lives climbing corporate or academic or social ladders, we will discover that not only were our ladders leaned against the wrong building, but maybe we were climbing them the wrong way, that maybe the way down was always the way up and that to save our lives we always had to lose them. And we're haunted by the prospect that the ends do not justify the means, not in business nor in politics, and that we could gain the whole world, win the next election, corner the market, but lose our souls. And we're very much afraid that we're all made in God's image, that God loves every single human being, including our worst enemies, and that we should love them too. These questions haunt us because they're not just about how we see Jesus, but also how we see ourselves. But on the other side of this haunting, I would suggest, is hope. Hope that suffering and weakness is not an indication that God is distant from us or cold toward us. Hope that whatever you're going through or whatever you may have done, God sees your face and he loves you. Hope that there might be more to life than bootstrapping and ladder climbing. Hope that God's love really is stronger than death and really does conquer all and that on the other side of a Christ-centered, cross-bearing life is resurrection. So, now what? Uh, Some of us have been following Jesus for a long time. Uh, But maybe, like Peter, and if I'm honest, like me, you struggle with the idea that our crucified Lord calls us to a cruciform life. My prayer for us is that we would lay hold of the hope that we have in Christ so that we could be freed from fear, to live wholehearted and self-sacrificial lives of love. Now, some of you may not be convinced you wouldn't call yourself Christian, but if you're honest, you're Christ-haunted, maybe just a little. If that's you, I hope that I've shown you that there are some good reasons to take the gospel seriously and to believe that Jesus uh, is the risen Lord. And I would invite you to explore these claims seriously with an open heart and an open mind. But, I would also add, that if Jesus is indeed the risen Lord, then he's not a mere historical figure. He's not past, he's present. And the most vital question before each of us is not my question of who do you think Jesus is, but the question that Jesus is asking each of us right here and right now, who do you say that I am? So, in light of that, let's pray. So, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would make yourself known to us today. For those of us who are flagging in faith, I pray that you would renew our hope and reassure us of your power and your love. And for those of us who are not yet convinced, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, give us conviction of the reality of your resurrection from the dead and of your gentle rule over all things. Haunt us, Lord. I pray you would haunt us until we take up our crosses and follow you. Amen.